Well, I know most of you have probably heard of you know, Black Friday, right? Especially the gals. You probably enjoy Black Friday and can't wait for Black Friday to come. And there's, I guess, some good shopping deals and that kind of a thing. Well, there's also a thing called Black Monday. And probably most of you girls don't know it. And even most of you guys don't know it. And what's Black Monday? Well, Black Monday is the day after the final day of NFL football regular season. Why do they call it Black Monday? It's because they usually have about six coaches that are immediately fired. And, and it's crazy. And there's usually always one that kind of shocks everybody. And, you know, everybody in the football world is a little surprised. Uh, but this year we actually had three. It was, it was a wild week, and you know, if you guys aren't football fans, bear with me. Uh, it'll, we'll, we'll go get somewhere. But, but we had three of the all-time winningest coaches um, you know, asked to depart you know, by mutual agreement. Uh, they were fired. It's a really nice way of, of firing people. Um, but Pete Carroll for the Seattle Seahawks, which m many of you probably have heard, uh, Bill Belichick for the New England Patriots and then Nick Saban for in college for the uh, Alabama Crimson Tide. And so while this may, you know, shock the sports world, uh, in, in my mind, in my brain, it just reminds me of, of, of process. Uh, how so? Well, these teams are, are constantly planning and they're not just trying to win one game or one season but there's ownership involved and, and they're trying to have a, a winning system or a winning program. And so even though you may have like a great coach and they've been a great coach, they're looking at the five-year plan. And all three of those coaches that I named while they're living legends, they were all very old as well. And while they still may have had one or two years uh, left of, of you know, good coaching, as, as leadership and ownership looks at it's like yeah but do they have five years and in that time can we replace them with somebody who then will get the program up and running or keep the program going uh, so that we don't skip a beat and so there's different reasons why these coaches are replaced well one of the things in this process which is what interests me uh, on many levels is well there's there's a mindset of coaching philosophy and so traditionally, there's either either you have a defensive mindset or an offensive mindset. And it used to be the phrase defense wins championships. You know, I mean, after all, you can't lose a game if you don't give up any points. Right. Seems to make sense. Uh, so the defensive mindset is, OK, you know, strategically, they, they tend to be conservative. They uh, they play it safe. They, they don't risk a lot. Uh, they don't take a lot of gambles. They're usually hard-nosed, tough, physical. Um, they're old school, very old school. Very, very cautious to, to change and innovation. Whereas the offense, and, and, and by nature, the offense is, is aggressive. The offense is in pursuit. And the offense has to figure out a way to attack the strengths and weaknesses of the defense. And so the, the nature of the offense then is to, to try new stuff, to try new strategies, new techniques, new formations, even throw in some, 
some trick plays. Well, in life, we label these things similarly. We call them conservative or we call them liberal. Uh, nowadays, you hear the phrase progressive. That's, you know, that's really when you want to give the, the liberal mindset a very high-minded, high-art uh, kind of prestige that it doesn't deserve. And what that means is, well, nothing, nothing is set in stone. And so the progressive mindset looks at the U.S. Constitution and says, that was written a long time ago. We can make it better. We can fix it. We can change it. We will fix it. We will change it. And, and so anything goes. We can bend or push the rules all the way to and even a little bit past the limits. Well, we live in a culture, in a society that really has that mindset that, you know what, you can, you can change anything, you know, just, yeah, the coach has been the best coach ever, but get rid of them. You know, we'll just try something new. Um, and there really doesn't seem to be any like absolute rules. All the, all the absoluteness are, are, are being tear, torn down in, in our society, right? Uh, anything that's conservative needs to be challenged. We saw that with the hippies. Uh, the hippies really challenged everything, and then the hippies went out, had kids, and now we're suffering the consequences of that. Um, well, it's that old mindset, again, of, of the fences. You know, you, you come up and you come upon a fence, and you don't give any thought to who put it there, why it's there, what was the purpose of that fence being there? You just tear it down. You just don't like the fence. The fence is old. The fence is in the way. The fence is ugly. And so let's just get rid of it and tear it down. That's a very liberal, progressive uh, mindset. Well, we have a word now that we use that has become a bad word. And that bad word is tradition. If you think about it, tradition has become a bad word. It, it's, it's not progressive. It, it, it's not innovative. It, it doesn't look forward to newness. It, it's, it's stale. It's, it's old. It's, it's played. Uh, I was reminded of this in one of my favorite movies, Fiddler on the Roof, you know, in the opening scene. And really the whole movie is about the concept of tradition and how they honor tradition. Well, as depicted in the movie and for us as Christians, tradition all falls upon God's expectations. And, and so for us as Christians, we have God's holy word that's, that's clear directives, clear commandments, statutes, precepts. We, we also see traditions within this framework that we're to hold on to. And so traditions and the commandments kind of blend in together and, and it's kind of the, the explanation or the principle becomes the practice. Um, and so it actually also defines who you are as a Christian, how you act. But we live in a society that asks why, why? just to ask why and the why never stops and and we've been deluded into thinking that that's actually good thinking that that's actually good academia 
except that they, they never stop to answer the why. They just keep asking why. Why should we do it that way? Why? Why? Um, and so our goal then should be, well, what does is, what is God's word say? What does God's word say? If we say why, we have to ask, well, why is it that way? And what does God's word say about that? that? That's our goal. And so the Bible clearly tells us that we're to be holy. We're to be holy. And what is holy? Holy, yes, we understand the idea of righteousness. We understand the idea of following and obeying God's word. But in the Old Testament, it has the meaning of being separate. And so you saw Israel was called out amongst all the other nations to, to be different. So, so that when we looked in the crowd and, 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 you know, today we have all the arguments, you know, who was first in the Middle East, right? And it's like, well, you're looking over there. It's like, well, all these different people have been here for thousands of years. And for us, you know, white bread Americans, if we looked out in the crowd, we couldn't tell you who was, you know, Palestinian, who is who is Jordanian, who is Iraq or Iran, uh, Armenian. I mean, you, you, we couldn't tell, and there's so many. And so God tells Israel, look, I want you to be separate. I want you to be holy. I want you to stick out like a sore thumb in the crowd. And so we see, you know, in Leviticus, Leviticus law and Deuteronomical law, we see all these laws of holiness and separation. And so Israelites were, were called to have their hair a certain way. So when you saw them, you'd go, oh, yeah, that's an Israelite. I can tell by their hair. You could tell by the way they wore their clothes. Oh, there's an Israelite. They, they, they dress differently. You, you could tell by even uh, different parts you know, of regions whether or not they had piercings or tattoos, right? All that came into play because they don't do that. They don't... They don't you know, defame their bodies like that. What about the, the food that they eat, keeping kosher? So every single thing that they did what was a part of religious devotion and obedience to God, and it was part of being separate. But what would we do today? Why? Why? Why, do I, why can't I eat bacon? Why can't I do this? Why do I have to wear this hat? Why do I have to have my hair long? Why do I have to have my, have my hair bald? Why, 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 right? We just challenge, challenge, challenge. I want to remind you in Romans 9. Romans 9 is a, just a, a, a good place, and really the book of Romans just keep cycling through it over and over again. But Romans 9 always resonates with me when I feel a little uppity with the Lord. Uh, Romans 9.14. What shall we say then? Is there no injustice with God? I, I love the way this starts because that's really what we're saying most of the time. We're really challenging God. You know, why can't I have premarital sex? God, everybody else is. Do you, do you think God is unjust in this? Um, why can't I get divorced five times? Do you think God doesn't understand about the difficulties of marriage? Why can't I just have situational ethics? Everybody else in the business community does. No, God is not unjust. God understands what's going on much better than you. For what shall we say then? There, there is no injustice with God. Is there? No, may it never be. For he says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Just who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So in the context of this, remember, they're trying to understand this concept of for, for you know, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And, and so then, you know, here's, here's the debate. And we have the same debate now in Christianity about, you know, they are Calvinists and Arminians. And, you know, is there election or, or not election and, and things like that. And it's like, whoa, 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 but just, just let's understand something real quick. Are you finding fault with God here? Do you think God is unjust here? Just who do you think you are? Who do you think you're talking to, man? To answer back to God, the, the thing molded? You're just something I molded. We're, we're just Play-Doh. We're just the putty that, that God pulled out of a, of a heap of nothing and, and shaped and formed and breathed life into and, and now we're going to challenge him why did you make me like this right verse 21 or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one of vessels for honorable use and another one for common use and so the context here and we're not getting into the the exact purpose of 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 of, of Romans 9, but we see this principle that, that lingers on, which is, look, God has point and purpose, point and purpose for the things that he commands, for the things that he ordains, for the, for the way things happen. And we don't always fully comprehend exactly the reason why, but our role is to obey, to do. And so we see this as we turn back to Matthew 3. It's a long introduction for Matthew 3, but we only have a few verses to cover today. And we want to look at three questions about baptism because Jesus is going to be baptized by John the Baptist. And it's amazing to me how many books have been written, how many arguments have been written, how many denominations there are over the subject of baptism. Baptism. It's really fairly simple. But here's three questions right here in Matthew 3 that we want to look at. First, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? Number two, why did the Spirit descend upon Jesus at baptism? And then number three, why did God affirm Jesus' divinity through baptism? These are three things that we see here in, in Matthew 3. And so remember, the background is uh, it's been about 30 years since Jesus, since Christmas. Okay, So Jesus is born right in the manger. 
everybody's excited. There's worship. There's there's joy and jubilation, and then nothing. We like don't really hear of him. We see a couple instances of of him as a young man, but really there's nothing for about 30 years. We see this in Luke 3:23, and then all of a sudden, and we see this in John 1:29, where John the Baptist says, "Here comes the Lamb of God." It's like he's here. Since, since before Christmas, when John the Baptist was prophesied that he was going to be the forerunner to tell everybody about Jesus, John the Baptist had to wait 30 years, Jesus is waiting 30 years, and now all of a sudden, he's here, he's here, he's here. Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Very, very specific. We see in John 1, 37, 42, that two of John the Baptist's disciples, Andrew and Peter, then leave John the Baptist to join Jesus. And so that brings us to Matthew 3, verse 13. Let me, let me read. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permitted at this time for it, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So the first question we want to ask is, well, why is Jesus being baptized? Why is Jesus being baptized? Now, first, we know that it's Jesus who goes to John. It's Jesus who pursues John, not the other way around. So this wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, oh, we just kind of bumped into each other, right? Um, no, this was Jesus who sought out John. So this is part of Jesus's plan to what? To humble himself in, in, in this process of baptism. The other interesting note, as I mentioned, is this is the, the launching of Jesus's public ministry. This, this is the beginning of, of, of Jesus's leadership. And how does he do it? Just like Jesus always does in this perfect servant leadership kind of a way, right? Where the leader is, is also humbles himself as a servant, which is a great uh, example for us to follow. We, we see in verse 15 that, that Jesus, who is the master He's allowing this, this situation to happen. Now, John, John the Baptist understanding, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I, I am the student here. This is the master. I'm just the, the student. He's the, the authority. Not me. I, I, I shouldn't be baptizing Jesus. In fact, look, we, we know and from our earlier study in Matthew 3, we, we understand the, the process here that, that John the Baptist is proclaiming, look, you need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? You need to confess your sins. Why? Because you're a sinner. You need to be ready to flee from the wrath to come because the consequences of disobedience is death. And so come confess your sins, avoid the wrath to come, and we're going to baptize you in this symbolic gesture of ultimately the death, burial, and resurrection for the newness of life. Now, why would Jesus have any need for that? 
He hasn't sinned. He's perfect. He's holy. He, he doesn't need to go through that process, right? And John understands this. And John understands not only that, but his role as, well, I, I'm the, the student and this is the master. It's not for me to baptize Jesus. But Jesus does this. And again, it begs the question, why? Well, one of the th- insights that we get is at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, the great assignment given not only to Jesus' disciples, but really to all of us, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, here's the commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. And so we see here that baptism is something that, that Jesus partakes in. It's also something that he gives commission that, look, this is part of the process of, of evangelism, of spiritual growth, of Christianity. Not that it saves you. To be very, very clear about that. Baptism does not save you. Um, but, it, but it's part of, of what? Well, here's some things. First, it's commanded by Jesus, right? Matthew 28. It's modeled by Jesus. Jesus models this obedience. Not because Jesus needed it himself for cleansing or salvation. First, because he's perfect and holy and doesn't need it. But he still models it. Part of this is an identification. It's a marker. Now, we've lost total sight of that. You know, many Christians have been baptized multiple times. It's like, oh, yeah, American Christians. And we get, I, got, I got, you know, soaked, you know, with the little drip. I got thrown into a tub. I was in a river. I was at a lake. I get baptized every week. When, when's the next one? We just don't think of it. And to be fair, some people have, um, you know, some, some, some different changes in life and feel like, well, I'm not sure if that was legitimate when I was 13 or whatever. So I, I don't want to put that down. But what I'm saying is, as, as Americans especially, we've lost sight that, you know, baptism is an identification of your Christianity. And in certain parts of the world, even today, it's a death sentence. And we take it for granted. And, and Jesus is saying, look, th- this is an identification as Christ. That's what Christian means, Christ-like. So be like Christ, be baptized. It's part of the mark and the symbol of the newness of life, a new life in Christ. And again, it's not mandatory for salvation, but it's an honor and a privilege It's an honor and a privilege to partake and do something that Jesus himself felt was necessary to do and and how he launched his ministry. And so, like the potter, instead of challenging and asking, why do I have to? Do I have to do it to be saved? You know, and asking a million questions, just obey and follow and and do it with with a, a contrite heart. It's one of those traditions that, that we need to partake in. It's one of those ordinances. And, and as I mentioned, fences were put there for a reason. We were watching a 
you know, a, a movie and we saw the, the British hedgerows, you know, and you see these rolling mountains in Great Britain and you see the, the hedges that clearly have been planted, you know, hundreds, thousands years ago that mark out what? Well, actually, we don't know, do we? We think we know. We think it's all about property lines. Maybe it's property lines. Maybe it's a border law from countries. Maybe it's a, a, a military wall for, for war. Maybe it's a levy. You ever been to New Orleans? You don't know. Respect why it's there. And so we need to respect what baptism is just like Jesus did. Well, the second question we have is, well, what about this spirit descending upon Jesus. Why did this Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus at baptism? Verse 15. But Jesus answered, he said, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water and, and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. Well, First of all, I love this phrase, Jesus said, permit it. He's the one in authority. He's the one in charge, right? And, and what do we see here? We see that, well, Jesus is, is actually yielding uh, his, his crown, yielding his, his divinity of all things. Uh, again, we lose sight of this as modern day Christians. And even though we say it, we, we really have to get our arms wrapped around the, the fact that, that, that Jesus, as part of the triune Godhead, stepped foot on earth in human, as a human in Philippians 2, having this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're, we're supposed to have the same attitude as Jesus, who although he exists in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But instead, this is what Jesus does. He empties himself. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. That's a willing servant, right? A willing slave. And being made in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Now, the Greek and the Romans, they had it all wrong, right? They, they, they wanted their gods really were, were just men who had, you know, godlike uh, traits. Our God is different. He is God who then comes as man and yields his divinity. He doesn't use it to play games with earthlings or satisfy his, his own lusts. No, Jesus came for a purpose, on a mission, to seek and save the lost. He came to die, to give his body, even to the point of death, death on the cross. And so, Jesus doesn't say, well, why, why should I do this? Why should I get baptized? You know who I am? I'm Jesus, the Christ, the King. I'm the son of God. I don't need to do this stuff. But that's not what he does. Instead, he makes this great statement. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's, it's right. 
It's, it's, it's good to live and, and to embody it. As Nike would say, just do it. Just do it. Fulfill all righteousness. When was the last time that you, you, you thought, you know what my goal is? You know what my desire is? You know what my hope is? My, my vision? I want to not just be righteous, but, but fulfill it. It's good. It's a good thing to be righteous. When did we lose sight of that? Oh, I, I know. The legalists ruined it, right? I don't want to be legalistic, so I don't want to be holy. I don't want to be legalistic because that's just part of the old tradition. That's old school. Remember, Matthew 5.17, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Well, well, this is the Old Covenant. It's the Old Testament. You know, th- those laws, you know, have, has, have transitioned into the New Testament. And, you know, do, do I even need to read this? As I mentioned before, it's essential that we know the totality in all of Scripture. And, and Jesus says, look, I came to fulfill all the law. And so all righteousness is, is good. It's fitting. It's right. And, and we need to change our mindsets. We need to change our mindsets to say, you know, it is my great desire to live out the, the, the role and the mandates that, that Christ says. When, when we see we're to live by the Spirit, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's good. It's good to live uh, and to fill all the righteousness of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, right? Faithfulness, self-control. Don't just say it. Don't just blurt it out, but actually meditate on each and every one of those words and live out each and every one of those words in your relationships, at work, at home, at play. This is a good thing. Fulfill it. Do it. Live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Why? Well, we see this transition now from old covenant, old school law to New Testament. Here comes Jesus. And part of what we're going to see here, and this is just the beginning. Remember, we're just scratching the surface here in Matthew 3. In Matthew 3, we're living an old covenant, old testament we're living in that world in Matthew 3. Jesus hasn't died on the cross, right? Ushering in the new covenant. In Matthew 3, we're, we're still just understanding that this new role and relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is baptized. He's in the water. And, and then immediately when he comes out of the water, the heavens open up. Right? Heavens open up. And he saw a sp- the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. What a picture. And behold, a voice out of heavens. This is my Son, my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. What a picture, though. What's this a picture of? <clears throat> Again, this is that, that beautiful representation of, of the new birth. 
right? The old guy, the old creature, the old sinner is, is now dead and coming out of the water. Now you have a spiritual awakening, a spiritual rebirth as, as Nicodemus would come to find out and ask about. And so what we see here is this picture then of what that is with Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit comes upon him and, and, and boom, the Holy Spirit is now with Jesus. What a picture. What a beautiful picture of what? Well, in Exodus um, 25, verse 17 to 22, and Leviticus 16, 2, and I mentioned to you about this before, in the temple of God, in the temple of God rested the Ark of the Covenant, which would be behind the Holy of Holies. So, so you got to picture, either picture a temple building or even just a kind of a fenced area. But you have, here's the temple, and, and you come in to make sacrifice for your sin. Right here, we're going to make sacrifice for sin. But behind there is the Holy of Holies. Nobody's allowed to go in there, right? And behind there is where the Ark of the Covenant sits. And on the Ark of the Covenant, made in the Ark of the Covenant is, is what's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where, where the Spirit of, of God visits and rests. And so it was a representation of God being in the center of Israel, of the Israelite people. And so the temple would be here and, and the 12 tribes of Israel would all branch off. And in the center would, would be God resting, sitting in the temple on the mercy seat. It was, a, it was a representation of God dwelling with his people. It's called tabernacle. That's tabernacling. And so what that would be is, look, someday I'm going to tabernacle. I'm going to dwell in you, in your heart, in your body, not just in a, the middle of a tent. What a beautiful picture in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, that the body, our body as believers is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which was bought with the price. And this is, is the, the beginning of that new covenant relationship. And we see this with the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus as a visual representation now of the Spirit being present. And baptism is, is all part of, of, of that symbolic event happening. It's a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture of Ezekiel 36, verse 26 through 27 of, of the new covenant relationship that we have not an old one, a new one, where God is going to give us a new heart. God is going to give us a new spirit. What kind of a spirit? A spirit that's within us. You guys can't even begin to fathom how special that is. To be like David, to not know if, if, if the Holy Spirit is going to leave you. Uh, the men, we studied this um, not too long ago, and, and, and you got to understand the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. And so David sees the Holy Spirit come upon King Saul and then leave him because of Saul's wickedness. 
And so when David commits adultery with Bathsheba and, and he goes before the throne of God in prayer and contrition, he says, you know, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit for me. Remember the song? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. That's David pleading to God, don't leave me. Holy Spirit, do not leave me. That's not going to happen again in the new covenant. What a, what a beautiful thing. And so in Acts 2 and Pentecost, when the, the Holy Spirit showers upon you know, believers, this then is the literal representation of what's taking place with Jesus here at his baptism. So this then is, why does Jesus do this? Why does the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus? Because this is the spiritual coronation of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. What a great picture that we see. Well, the third question we ask is, okay, well, why does God affirm Jesus's divinity? Why does God use this moment to reaffirm Jesus's divinity through baptism? Well, Verse 16, and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. So remember, Jesus is in flesh, right? Jesus is, is human and, and he's being baptized right away. You're thinking to yourself, well, if Jesus is being baptized, I guess he's got sin too. I, I, I guess he's like everybody else. He's a man. I can see that. He's being baptized. He must have sins to confess. And so like right away, God, no, not the same man. Not like John the Baptist. Not like you. Not like me. And so the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And then if that wasn't enough, verse 17, and behold, a voice out of heaven saying, this is my son my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Whoa, what a proclamation. What a proclamation. What does that mean? This is my beloved son. Well, right here again in verse 16 and 17, we, we see in, in, in one of its earlier stages, we see the the. the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit kind of gathering in this one place, right? We say Trinity as though, again, it's just a word. It's nothing. The Trinity, the triune Godhead is the hallmark of Christianity. That's what separates us from everybody else on the face of the earth. That's the uniqueness of our understanding of who Jesus is compared to everybody else. All the other major false religions, they have a Jesus in them. They have a Jesus story. What makes us different? We believe that God is, is God, one nature, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one, monotheistic. There is one God and one God alone. Okay, now I'm confused because you just said Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? But that's why he's got he's to say it. That's why he's got to establish that so that we all know, no, it's not three separate gods, right? The father is not the son. The father is God. The son is not the Holy Spirit. The son is God. The, the Holy Spirit's not the father. No, the Holy Spirit's God. And so all three, the three persons 
of God's divinity are one. They're, they're one. And so we see this gathering together here. And this is God the Father saying, this is my son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. I'm putting my, my, my mark of approval on this. And the Holy Spirit sits upon and rests upon him. This, this is, a, again, a major shift in the world. We, we, we come to this as believers and we just kind of, you know, oh, yeah, that's what Christianity is. No, no, no. Matthew 3.16 is like, this is a big change. Because remember, the old covenant is turning into the new covenant. The, the Messiah isn't going to come. He is here. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is here in ministry. And now what we're seeing is, okay, here, here's the triune Godhead in, in earnest. So when we see John 1, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, Jesus, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and beheld his glory, glory as to the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see that God affirms Jesus' divinity through this baptism moment as part of the triune Godhead. Matthew 26 goes on when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, after Jesus' ministry, keep hearing this over and over again. And they finally come to a point where they challenge Jesus and say, wait a minute, are, are you saying you're the son of God? Did we get that right? It's like, we've been saying it for three years. Been saying it from the beginning. Okay, but at the end of, G of Jesus' life, in, in, in Matthew 26, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come and say, tell us if you're the Son of God. And he says, I am. Right? I'm the Son. Well, who's the Son of God? Only God can claim himself to be the Son of God. Right? And Jesus does that and. John 19, 7 and John 14, 6, that there's only one way through the Father, and that is through the Son. So we see that, that connection. We see the connection. We see it again in Matthew 28, and that we're to go out and baptize and preach and teach and disciple in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead. We see it again in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, that we're one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father, that the three are one. And so the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, not just his birth and, and not just his death or just his return, but also his baptism. This is how God uses baptism for Jesus because why is Jesus getting baptized? Again, that's the question, right? It's not because of his personal sin. This is the spiritual coronation. This is the reminder. This is the clarification of who Jesus is as the second person of the triune Godhead. And it's essential that we understand this in the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of his ministry. Because 
part of the confusion in Jesus' life is going to be, is he God? Is he a God? Who is this Jesus? And it really is going to be the question that people will ask from this time forward. And God's trying to give it to us very clearly and concisely so that we understand exactly who Jesus is and what's his role as the son in whom the father is well pleased. And so again, why should you get baptized? Um, You should get baptized because Jesus got baptized. Jesus got baptized. Good enough for Jesus, good enough for me, right? Kind of that good old time religion thing. (coughs) It's commanded by Jesus, obeyed and modeled by Jesus. Part of our identification as Christians, part of what marks our new life, our new birth experience. And again, not mandatory for salvation, but don't get caught up in that because that's our, our, our form of rebellion, right? Well, if I don't have to do it to save me, then I don't have to do it. Well, no, we, we, we have tradition. We have commands. We have ordinances that, that we follow. Understand the spiritual significance, the spiritual significance of baptism in, in this relationship as a New Testament Christian, as a New Testament Christian being uh, identifying with Christ is, is death, burial, and resurrection. His death, burial, and resurrection. And then very clearly understand that Jesus Christ is the incarnated God. This is God who dwelt among us in flesh. The Word becomes flesh. And this is the great mystery. How does that happen? How did, right? And it's like, man, oh man. Just understand it and believe it. That's where our faith kicks in. That's where in, our, in our, the humanity of our mind, we, we start to, to challenge and question and puzzle. And, and, and that's the line of demarcation. If, okay, you know what? By faith, I'm going to understand this versus I'm going to challenge it every single inch and step of the way. It really shouldn't make sense if you think about it you being able to fully search out the mind of God, you being able to really understand and have the the key to the mysteries of God. Um, Speaking from myself and my feeble mind, if my mind can figure out God's mind, that doesn't make God's mind all that great because I got a little pea brain of a mind, right? Um, God, by definition, is unfathomable in his ways. In his very nature, the, 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 the triune Godhead three in one is miraculous and amazing and incredible. And the scripture over and over and over again affirms that. I just gave you a couple different verses. But the scripture affirms that, which again is why we need to continuously be in the word and read the whole thing from beginning to end. Because the thread of, of who Christ is starts in the very, very beginning. We, we read about how, how Christ is, is, is part of the word, part of the, the creation of the world. That puts Christ in the very, very beginning. That puts him in, in, in 
Genesis 1.1, even though we don't see his name written out there. And so it's very important because if we don't understand this, then we're going to be easily swayed in our misunderstanding. These are the major, the major religions, Jewish, Muslim, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, all of them have major, major doctrines of Jesus that are so greatly flawed, which unfortunately leads to a different Jesus, which leads to a different God, which leads to a different way. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your example that you give. Sometimes as we're walking and following in your path, we stumble upon the prize. And so often I find that to be true with your word, that, that if we just follow and obey, if we just follow in the footsteps of, of the tradition and John the Baptist and, and, and Jesus and the apostles and, and, and these, these things that, that they do as part of the, uh, their, their, their obedience, as part of the, the Christian ordinances, as, as part of, of just being holy and separate from others, that, Lord, there's great blessing, there's great reward in that. There's great symbolism in this beautiful thing that we call baptism. And so, Lord, we're thankful that Jesus himself was baptized. We're thankful for the representation of not only the death, burial, and the resurrection, but also the newness of life found with the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we give thanks for this word in Jesus' name. Amen.